verse 21. I'll read a few verses. We'll pray first. Our Lord and our God, as we look at your words of life in the early church, Lord, I just pray that you give us wisdom in how we are to present you to the world, Lord. I pray, O Lord, that you guard my lips that I represent you properly and give us ears to hear, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 17, starting in verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very righteous. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. But therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, that he is actually not far from each one of us. You may be seated. You know, this is the second part of this message, you know, a fine mess we have gotten ourselves into. Remember, when Paul was in Athens, he was deeply disturbed by all the idolatry in the city. It was gut-wrenching to him. He's concerned about the souls, the lost souls that were being deceived. And he went, as he usually did, to the synagogue. First he preached to the Jews, trying to reason with them in the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And then he went throughout the town, and he also preached throughout the city, in the marketplace. And he got the attention of the Epicureans and the Stoics, the two uh, main philosophical groups. So they wanted to give him an audience to hear what he had to say. Because in reality, these groups had no clue to ultimate truth. They did not have the answers to life. They had man's opinions, which change. But they were eager to give their opinions. As a matter of fact, the Athenians loved to give their opinions. In verse 21, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Some new opinion on why are we here with life? Why do things change? And what's the power behind it? These opinions change time and time again. 
These philosophers did not have an idea or a clue when it came to ultimate truth because they were searching outside of God's word. You know, it's just like today. We have the philosophers of the day. We can call them their politicians. They don't know what truth is. And what, what is truth to them? Homosex, polysex, abortion, wokeness, socialism, the list goes on and on and on. That's truth to them. And they want that to be truth to us as well. They don't get it right because they have no reason to get it right because they're going contrary to God's law. They do not search out God's law for the answers of life. Either they are ignorant of it or they despise it. They have no fear of God and no respect for the church of God. No fear of God and no respect for the church of God. And partially that is the church's fault because we have accepted it. We have accepted pietism that our religion should just be held inside and not be the discipling of the nations as God commands us to do. Go and make all nations disciples of all nations. That includes the nations, the leaders. Paul demonstrates how he discipled the nations in the way he treats these Athenians. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Arapachus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Religious. You know, this isn't a compliment. As we see, as Paul goes through his life, and as many of the prophets went through their lives, religion was the enemy of God's truth. You know, man has been created to worship God. And every culture that is studied, there is a form of religion because it's so ingrained in man. But many times, man corrupts it, changes it, the images, the likes, the beliefs that they prefer. And through religion, many men, just like the Athenians, are deceived. Because they're following the father of lies, who is Satan. And false religion is a lie. So men end up making gods, religious forms in their own image that pleases themselves. And many times, these forms of religion enslave others. You see it in India with the caste system. Saw it in Nazi Germany. That was a religion. The Third Reich, a thousand-year reign. Jews and whoever, the gypsies and whoever else they thought were unworthy. Religion does not free people. It enslaves when it's a false religion many times. But Paul, you know, he says, you know, I know you guys are very religious. It's not a compliment, but he uses that to his advantage. 
Paul was wise as a serpent. Verse 23, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also the altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Remember, these Athenians had temples everywhere. Some of these philosophers would come up with an idea and say, well, this is a god. Well, they okay, yeah, go ahead. We'll make a temple. We'll worship that one too. And maybe they were a little paranoid. They didn't want any god being mad at them, so they had an altar to the unknown god. And they didn't know that god. Paul says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul says, I'm going to tell you the truth about the ultimate truth of this God. Again, he used this as his launching pad to declare ultimate truth to these idolaters. And Paul will, as we go through this, he will give the reasons for life, why we're here, who controls it. Why things change. He has the answers. He starts right off. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Say that is what our message to the world must be. God made you, God made the world, which means you are accountable to God. Do you ever wonder why the pagans, the non-believers, the God-haters push so much for evolution? It makes people not responsible to God. But they don't have the answers to life. What do evolutionists believe? That some primordial pool of bacteria changed into a human being over time? And we die, we just go right back into that pool of bacteria? Francis Schaeffer described the evolution's position perfectly. He said both, both their feet are firmly planted in midair. Think about it. Man is nothing but advanced bacteria. And automatically, when we become born and live in this world, we're supposed to have a moral character, care about our neighbors, care about our friends, care about the world. And when we die, we're just going to be bacteria again. Where does this caring come from? Why would we care for anybody's lives or property? We're just bacteria. Where does the moral compass come from in there? They don't have any answer for that. But yet, they'll promote that evolutionary indoctrination. And how has it worked out? Well, man... If you're taught you're just advanced slime, we'll act like slime. And we see it, 50 years of abortion. 
and all the other problems we see in our nation. Slothfulness, depending on others for your, your substance. Making laws where you can steal $999 and it's all right. They're acting as evolutionists should act. They're not accountable to God. However, there is one problem with that. They are accountable to God. God says all men are accountable to him. And if they act like slime, he will wipe that slime off the face of the earth. He will judge it. Whether they believe in him or not, they will be judged. Are we being judged in America because of all the sins? Because we have not discipled the nation? The pietistic teaching that has invaded the church where we have nothing to do with government or the things around us, that religion is just internal, and we turned and surrendered those realms over to the civil government, sinners, who feel they're unaccountable to God? God will judge. God is in control. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. God has determined that you and I are here this day, this time of history, that our lives are here. God has allowed that. Brought it about. God brings about the rise and the fall of nations. Where's the Persian Empire? It's gone. The Roman Empire is gone. Many times the Jewish nation was sent into slavery because they stepped aside and followed foreign gods. These nations that fall, many times it's because of the philosophers of the day that lead people into sinful practices which rob God of his glory. God will not share his glory with another. Yes, God does bring up some pagan nations he uses them, but they're still judged. They will pay for their sins. But it is God who is control of change in this world. He's in control of the change of our lives, our nation's life. He has determined the length of days that we have on this earth, he has determined the length of days that nations have on this earth as powerful nations. Again, we see it if we read the Old Testament, how God judged his own people time and time again, sent them into captivity. 
It was always because of idolatry. Same with our nations, idolatry. Our Lord sustains all of creation. He sustains you and I and everything in it. You know, in Hebrews 1.1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe. Our God is control of everything that happens in this universe. And if we do see judgment come on a land, you know, that is even a measure of God's grace. Because it will bring men to the end of themselves. And they will realize, some men will realize that God is near them, and some will seek God, who is always ready to forgive them when they repent. So even in his judgment of people, it is a form of mercy. He stops them from going into deeper and deeper sin, deeper and deeper idolatry. It tells us in verse 27 that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And he is actually not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. Paul answers all the questions of life right there. It's all in Christ. That we live, that we move, and we have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. You know they got that right, that we are God's offspring. He created us. We're his children. Again, all the answers of life are given here by Paul. He created us, controls what happens. It's all his power. In him we live and move and have our being. It's in Jesus Christ. He controls lives, the lives of individuals and nations. As a matter of fact, the whole universe. You know, the divine Jesus did not die on the cross. bodily Jesus did. If the divine Jesus ever died, the universe would not exist. Our God holds things together. And Paul, he tells these Athenians how wrong they got it. He might have insulted them. Heaven forbid that a Christian insults anybody in this day and age. Being then God's offspring, we not ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Times of ignorance, in times of these times of ignorance, God overlooked. Says you got it wrong. These are all creatures created by you, imaginations. 
But he's telling them our God is patient. He allowed you to build up this city, this Athens, this adulterous city, and he didn't destroy you right away. But don't think you're going to get away with it. His time of patience is running short, and it will come to an end. You will be judged if you don't repent. It tells us here, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, I know this is a difficult sentence to understand. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, I don't see any loopholes in there. No exceptions. All men everywhere to repent. Does that mean that governors, politicians, philosophers don't need to repent? That they can ravage a country with their sinful practices and not be accountable to God and the churches to stand back and say, oh, go ahead. That's what pietism has given us. They are not exempt. The scriptures tell us that the kings of the earth are to kiss the sun. Because if he gets angry in a moment, he'll wipe them out. But this pietism, which we live under now in the church, and as Purcell said, it started about 300 years ago. We are living in the ripeness of it. Because now it's expected that we are to stay away from the civil realm. That our Christianity should stay here in the church or inside of us. And it should never enter the external world around us. It was accepted by the Lutherans. They birthed it, spread to the Baptists. And unfortunately, many of the reformers accepted. And now we have been walking with this pietistic teaching that has infected Christianity and neutered it, made it ineffective because we've separated it from the civil realm and from the ruling authorities. And we, like the Bereans, have to look deep and correct the air. You know, I witnessed this when I was in the pro-life movement. I was going to a Lutheran church, started protesting, got arrested a few times. They didn't like that. And I was told that politics was dirty. We don't have anything to do with it. It's a civil realm. Think about that. Don't have anything to do with it because it's dirty business. And when I persisted and did not stop protesting, they said I was sinning against the women going into the abortion clinic because I was trying to change their minds. Now think about that. I was a sinner for asking somebody not to kill their unborn child. I mean, it was confusing to me. 
at that time, and it was confusing to me even up until recently why they would say that. My cousin, a devout Baptist, attacked me like a rabid dog, saying I should just be sharing the gospel. That we shouldn't be exposing the product of abortion. Just share the gospel. What, was I supposed to tell the Freudian women, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Again, this confused me. But this is the effects of 300 years of pietism. These people, the pastors are taught this at the seminary and they teach the congregation, have nothing to do with the outside world. I don't know how many Christians told me, well, you people who are standing up in abortion for, against abortion are giving the church a black eye. <laughs> but it makes sense to me now if that's what they're taught. Don't have anything to do with politics? Where in God's word does it say that? I thought I just read that every man must repent. How's that, how's that sentence confusing? But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Except the politicians. If we don't confront the evil of the day, who will? You know, I, I listen to a radio station, the guy... He's pretty good. I like him. And he has a good truth detector because he's been doing it for so many years. And he says, you know, when he hears a story, he'll give his opinion and say, you know, something's not right with this. I don't believe this story, what they're giving out here. Because he says he likes to personalize it to say, well, if he was in that situation, what would he do or how would he? And if it doesn't make sense to him, he says, no, I think this person's lying. And we'll see. And a lot of times he's right. He's able to sort through the falsehood of the day. So let's personalize this a little bit. You know, because the church is teaching that uh, the one radio guy, Christian guy said, well, we can't moralize. We can't moralize. We can't moralize the government. That's moralizing the government. Well, yeah, I think that we're supposed to do that, make disciples of all nations. Don't you? Wouldn't that be moralizing it? But he says, no, the, that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to share the gospel. And the sinners, you know, they're just acting like sinners, so we have to expect it. And just expect that's a, a product of sin. And we can't change that. So let's moralize that. Let's say that you go home and you come home and a guy's raping your daughter. So as a believer, you're supposed to say, well, I really can't tell him to stop because that'd be moralizing it. And he's just a sinner acting like sinner, so, you know, it's just a product of sin. So, oh, I know what I can do. I, I can tell him, hey, can you just uh, hesitate for a little bit because I want to tell you that Jesus loves you and has a great plan for your life. How much sense would that make? Yet isn't that what the church is doing? Saying we can't judge sinners? We can't judge 
unjust laws because that'd be moralizing. You know, the church has been duped by this philosophical hogwash. And we see the results of it on our nation. It's being destroyed because this church has stepped back from discipling the nation according to God's law. And we will be judged for it. Our God is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and he will judge all men, kings, rulers, politicians, by his standards. Yeah, he's a patient God, but his patience runs out. And judgment will come. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul told them how it is. He didn't go and try to rub shoulders and give them a gentle uh, Jesus that says, oh, I love everybody no matter what. He told them biblical truth. And remember, these were the philosophers of the day. They were the ones who were respected as to be the wise, the wise Athenians. They were wrong, and Paul told them they were wrong, and he made it clear to them that they were wrong. It had some results. And that's what God's truth does. It brings men to repentance when they're told the true gospel message, which includes repentance. I covered that in part one. Because without repentance, there is no forgiveness. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damarius, and others with them. God's word cut through the hearts of falsehood, even in that idolatrous city, and some believed. Some believed. And that's what God's word does. You know, for about 1,500 years, the world was changed through God's word, and the rulers respected God's laws. But it's 300 years of this pietism that hasn't worked too well for the world or the nations. Wicked rulers love it. They love an ineffective church, a church that doesn't even get into the fight, that just surrenders. It gives them the power to create whatever wicked laws or decrees they want to, and they know they won't get much resistance. The repercussions from the church. You ever think about where was the church when the Third Reich was in its power and rising. 
Were they pietistically sitting in their pews saying, we can't affect the culture? As their neighbors, neighbors that we are commanded to love, were being terrorized, the Jews? Pietism is what kept them out. How did that work out for that nation and for them? Yeah, they left the pastors alone that agreed with the Third Reich for a while. The ones who stood against them and stood for biblical truth didn't go too well for them, but at least they stood for the truth. But what about our nation? Where was the church leaders when they took prayer out of school? You know, if you look at David Barton, historian, you can just see how everything declined, the grades and everything, and the problems, the sin in the schools when they took prayer out. Prior to taking prayer out, the biggest problem was people spitting spitballs or sticking gum under their chairs. I think it's a little worse now in the schools. Where was the church on easy divorce, abortion, and a multitude of other sins were made in the laws in this nation? You know, we have to change our tune as Christians. We have to change our tune as to the power and the authority that we have. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That's what Paul did. He understood he has that power and that authority through God's word. We have the power and the authority to change nations, to change lives. And we have the duty to do it, the command to do it from God. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. We have to change our tune. Our tune can't be, well, Jesus invites you to invite to have you have him come into your heart. No, he doesn't invite anybody. You send out an invitation, people can send it back and say, I don't want to come. He sends out a summons to people. He says, I demand you come and repent, or there will be repercussions. That's what God's message has to be to the people. And yet so many in the church we hear, don't mention God's law. It's offensive. Well, it is offensive to those who are perishing. But it's the power of life for those who will hear it. And it's what God commands us to do. But he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, if you repent, it means there has to be laws. It has to mean that you're breaking those laws. So I think you have to have the law mentioned in the gospel message. But now if you mention the law in the gospel message, many people are offended. Christians are offended. Well, you're not doing it right. 
Just tell them God loves you and has a wonderful plan for their life. Well, if they don't repent, I don't think his plan for their life is very wonderful. You know, we've seen throughout history where when God's law was obeyed by kings and rulers, how advanced it takes nations. Alfred the Great, in about 850, Christian man, and all the laws in his kingdom were based on God's laws. And it influenced for hundreds of years England and their laws. And it worked. God used him. The was, uh, wasn't even England then. It was broken up. The Saxons. It unified them. And when you look him up, when you look up the true history, it's, they tell, everybody says what a remarkable man, he, remarkable man he was because he knew he had derived authority. And his duty to the people was how God would have him do it. It worked in Geneva when Calvin was there. They didn't know what to do with the police because there was no crime. And it worked in our nation in its early history. Men respected God's laws and their nation thrived. Alex de Tocqueville said in his book, in his writing, he's not a non-Christian, a Frenchman, writing about the history of America. And he said, America is great because of what the, the Calvinists teach their children at the hearth about how they should run their businesses, the nation. Christianity so inspired our early nation, that is why it grew and prospered. Again, we must be like the Bereans, search out God's word, and see if it is so. And if it is not so, say, no, this is not so. And if anybody ever tells me again that I'm giving Christianity a black eye for trying to prevent the woman from killing her child, I'll have a lot more to say to him now. And it will be out of Christian love. but it will not be what they want to hear. God's word is offensive to those who are perishing, and it's offensive to weak believers who have given the ground away that they never should have given. I hope that we grow out of that. Let us pray. The Lord and our God, We've gotten into this mess because, unfortunately, many of our Christian forefathers stepped away from the fight. They stepped so far away that we didn't even know we were in a fight. And now those who fight are called mean sinners, 
unloving. But yet it's the love for our neighbors that we fight, the love for those who are being persecuted because of unjust laws that we stand. Lord, you loved us while we were yet sinners. Teach us to love, but teach us to love you and your word more than our own opinions and more than our ideas and more than the ideas of the philosophers of the day. Let us check each and every opinion with the word of God and boldly follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.